Welcome to Climate Optimus. I'm Jason Lewis. And I'm Todd Deshida. This week, we're going to be diving into the world of carbon offsets, also called carbon credits, and trying to assess out, are they a real tool for cutting emissions or just a dangerous PR stunt? But before we go there, wanted to address some listener comments. Yeah, I was accosted by a guy <laughs> named Ronnie, who is a religious listener of this podcast, which is good. I'm going back to our beef episode, and he was responding to me, and he said, why didn't you guys talk about a plant-based diet? Uh, wouldn't that be better all around? And he's got a really good point there. He's right. Obviously, if you're just already eating fruits and vegetables, that's going to be better than anything. You're already there. But what, you know, our, the focus of our episode, of course, was to try to speak to those folks that do eat meat and like meat and provide them with alternatives. And, you know, some of those folks are not just going to replace burgers with a plate of broccoli. Was Ronnie's point in, in some respect also that, you know, the fact that a plant-based diet is a healthier diet? I know we didn't focus as much on the health benefits, but it sounds like maybe that was part of his his comment as well. Exactly. He was saying, you know, there's still going to be fats and other processing stuff that's going to happen in these plant-based meat alternatives, and you won't get have to worry about any of that if you're just eating vegetables. He's not wrong there. Also, on Facebook, uh, Andrew reached out to me and he said, now brings my next question. Why livestock and where does it end? Vehicles have worse emissions than animals. It would seem that that would make sense. But when you really start looking at it, you know, livestock is responsible for about 14.5% of global emissions. And that is more than global transportation emissions. So it is pretty significant. And my, my point, too, is why not look at it, right? We're, we're looking at everything, you know? We do a podcast every week. <laughs> right. We got we to gotta find stuff to talk about. Yeah, we're leaving no stone unturned. No, in seriousness, though, I mean, I think it is worth looking at because there is really some serious potential there. This is something where if people make changes individually and not even really that large. I mean, if you look at some of what's out there about beef, if, if people just cut out beef one day a week, it's massive. You know, because of methane's kind of potency, it, when you look at the near term 20 years, livestock can have, you know, double the impact of cars. Of course, when you kind of, it's kind of about the timeline, when you extend that out to 80 to 100 years, that kind of reverses. Well, and to your point, I think that's a nuance that makes it harder sometimes to wrap your head around both transportation and livestock are big sources of emissions, but it is important to call out the fact that methane breaks down much more quickly. So sure. if you were to emit a bunch of methane and sort of the equivalent amount of kind of CO2 from a greenhouse gas perspective, in the near term, you know, the methane's gonna have a lot bigger impact. Right. And then it's only over time that the carbon catches up to that. And so I think the takeaway from that is that if we do cut back methane emissions, the impact is felt right away, where if we cut back carbon emissions, in most cases, we have to find ways to pull that out of the atmosphere because it, you know, it's not going to break down over the same time period. No, exactly. So that's a couple examples of some, you know, listener feedback that I wanted to respond to. And please, you know, go to our site and go to the Facebook page and ask us questions, you know, and comment. We'll we'll try to respond to that stuff. Well, and I, I guess on top of that, the fact is there are going to be things that we miss, you know. I mean, sure, 
as we're digging into these topics, some of them are things that we're more comfortable with, but but many are things that we're really doing the research on for the first time. And so we absolutely want to hear from listeners because we want to know if we've missed the mark on something. So speaking of methane, our reason for hope is related to the the uh, UN Climate Summit that's going on in, in Glasgow. And over 100 countries have pledged to cut methane, uh, which they're calling the Global Methane Pledge. And they're going to cut 30% uh, by 2030 compared to 2020 levels. And I think they're mainly focused on what would you call it, Jason? The industrial sector? Like the, the fossil fuel infrastructure. So everything from extraction to delivery of fossil fuel products, which I think accounts for over 30% of global methane emissions. So really taking care of those leaks. Yeah, exactly. China, India, and Russia are currently MIA somewhere, but uh, we thought that you know, over a hundred countries that that was pretty awesome. And that's going to probably have a, you know, significant impact. Definitely. And it helps ratchet up the pressure on India, China, and Russia to join in. There's also been some good news as well in terms of pledges to phase out coal. Unfortunately, the U.S. didn't sign on to the pledge. And the underlying reason there, it sounds like, unfortunately, is Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia and the worry that he's not going to sign off on the the Build Back Better bill in Congress that's intended to advance President Biden's climate agenda. It's crazy to me that we could have one senator with so much power and really sad given that coal is the world's largest source of emissions. The United States still gets 20% of our energy from that. We had an opportunity to be a leader and that opportunity is missed by somebody who's you know, focused on their own self-interest and stock portfolio over trying to help the world with a, a massive problem. Well, yeah. I mean, he's just bought, basically. <laughs> right? I mean, I don't know if there's any other way of putting it. And he's holding up the whole world here. It says, I love this headline, Joe Manchin blockaded in his car by climate protesters who claim he tried to run them over. <laughs> 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 oh, man. We live in a crazy place. You know, I wonder if... Uh, Putin's looking at this thing and he's like, these American, he's like, I just poison people if they don't do what I want to do. Why don't they just poison this guy? <laughs> Maybe Putin will send him a thank you letter, right? I mean, well, probably. Yeah. I mean, I think Australia should be sending him a thank you letter for sure as one of the world's largest coal exporters. They're big um, on coal, aren't they? They are. So. Leading into our main topic, I think we wanted to start out first with kind of the basic question of, you know, what are carbon offsets and how do they work? Well, carbon offsets are also known as as carbon credits. There may be some real debate about nuances there, but principally speaking, they're they're the same thing. And credits come from projects that are implemented specifically with the purpose of reducing greenhouse gas emissions. They're measured in metric tons of CO2 equivalent. Typical cost ranges from $10 to $20 per ton, which I thought was cheap um, when you're talking about carbon emissions. I was pretty shocked that, that that's sort of the average price at this point. It does seem low. When, when I saw the annual expenses on credits, this was it for this last year, 2019, and it was like $380 million. And I'm thinking, shoot. In any major city, that's 
that's just a few hundred houses <laughs> you could buy for that kind of money. Like, you know, when you think about worldwide or whatever, that doesn't seem like a lot. It doesn't, and I think it's part of the the appeal, right? Because mm-hmm. there are places and industries where it's much more expensive to try to reduce your emissions. Sure. And so, if you can deliver, you know, these credits or offsets for somewhere in the range of ten, twenty, even thirty dollars per ton, that's that's really a bargain. Right. So, in a sense, what they are is they're they're basically a way for some industry, you know, isn't able to to reduce their emissions very much. But what they can do is they basically fund these other projects that are supposed to offset their emissions. And with the theory that if they wouldn't fund these projects, they wouldn't get done. Yeah, you're spot on. And I think the similar is true if we think about our our individual footprints, you know, which we'll get into that. Offsets provide an opportunity to to deal with the things that you can't reduce. And I think that's a good segue into kind of the types of projects. So there are yeah. many flavors of, you know, carbon offset, carbon credit projects. There are what I would call kind of the natural carbon sinks. So things like reforestation, modified, you know, agricultural land management that help sequester carbon. One of the big ones that was developed as part of the Kyoto Protocol was this concept of reducing emissions from deforestation and forest degradation. It's a mouthful, also called RED. Yeah. The idea there, preserving areas that were at threat of being, you know, cut down if dollars weren't available to protect them. Right. Another flavor of projects are focused on methane capture, like biogas. And Mm. this ties directly to, you know, if listeners tuned into last week's episode about renewable natural gas, it's really about capturing emissions from garbage dumps, feedlots, et cetera. Right. Then there are what I would call kind of like community-focused projects. And the beauty of these is they often have multiple benefits. So, for instance, there's a project in Sudan that's focused on providing communities with more efficient stoves. And by having a more efficient stove, they don't have to burn as much wood. And by not burning as much wood, they're not having to cut down as many trees. And that all provides a carbon benefit. But what it also does for all these folks that are cooking inside their homes is it reduces indoor smoke. And so the kids aren't ending up with uh, smokers long by the time they're in their their 20s. Right. The other big category of projects are renewable energy projects. And we'll get into those and why we want to be careful in terms of considering renewable energy a, a viable project. And some of that has to do with what we've talked about in previous episodes. You know, renewable energy has really become cheap. And for a carbon credit or offset to be valid, it it has to result in something that wouldn't have occurred otherwise. Yeah. And the the term used to describe that in the in the carbon credit world is called additionality. And again, it's projects that wouldn't have occurred without funding from carbon credits. So if there's any doubt in that matter, it really can't be considered a credit. That makes a lot of sense. And it, it seems like they're, you know, hopefully trying to get better at kind of validating some of this stuff. Yeah. I mean, if you were to look at kind of based on the research that I did, sort of three things to focus on to ensure a quality offset. It's this concept of additionality. It's been validated by a third party. And when it comes to like natural projects, it doesn't have what's called leakage. In other words, 
you, you protect the you know thousand acres of forest, and so then they just log the they log the forest next door instead. Right. Um, but yeah, it's a growing market. It's expected to hit upwards of a hundred billion by the year twenty fifty. Wow, which is massive. Yeah. Um, and I think underscores the importance of making sure that's is done right, and they're the you know right checks and balances in place. Yeah. So I guess the next thing we should talk about is when when are carbon offsets appropriate? And you know, obviously, reducing should be the first priority because it doesn't really make sense, especially based on what we've been talking about and some of the criticisms against these credits and whether or not they're actually effective. You know, some of these companies are using old credits from years ago that really were based on some methodology that wasn't wasn't very sound. If a company can reduce, that's the best because you don't really just want people paying to <laughs> to pollute. Uh, so offsets should really only be used in areas where you just can't avoid it. Yeah, I mean, maybe it'd be beneficial to give folks an example that they can you know think about in their daily lives. I think one of the biggest ones for people personally is flying and you know the best way to combat that is really just to take less trips you know try to travel more regionally coach over first class one of the things you can do is you can purchase offsets uh when you travel it's hard to get around flying for certain things it's just you know it's just sometimes there's no alternative but we should try to offset our own travel if at all possible yeah i think I think that's a good segue into kind of what's arguably, you know, one of the biggest challenges with carbon offsets is is having them be used in in lieu of reducing emissions. The the last thing we want offsets to do is be an excuse for us to continue to pollute. We need to be first and foremost focused on not putting more of this stuff up into the atmosphere and really looking at carbon offsets as a as a secondary so it's sort of reduce and then offset. You can already see where this becoming problematic. In you know recent years, you have fossil fuel companies that have started branding their liquid natural gas as carbon neutral because they've purchased you know offsets from some undisclosed source. Mm-hmm. Shell is is probably the worst in terms of bad actors here. They had you know fourteen ships of LNG they would labeled as as carbon neutral as of July this year. <laughs> the that's crazy. It is crazy, and and of course you know. They haven't been transparent about the source of their credits or how much they paid for them, which just further underscores the problem. It's like, A, we shouldn't be pulling more of the stuff out, out of the ground and putting it in the air. And, and if you are going to do that, the only way that in my mind that's valid is if you're doing you know carbon capture and storage, right? You're When you're burning that natural gas or that coal, you're stripping all the carbon out of it before it goes in the atmosphere. And this idea that you can go out and you know buy some cheap carbon credits as a way to continue to use fossil fuels. I mean, it's just bullshit. It's a dangerous trend and is one that we can't allow to continue if we're going to deal with climate change. Right. I, one example I think was somebody bought a bunch of credits from a giant wind farm project that they, that they built in China. Of course, over, over the next decades, they, they built well and beyond that much capacity and wind without, you know, without really even needing the credits. And so you kind of look at that initial project and go, was that really necessary? Like, should, should they've actually had credits there? Right. Right. And, you know, I think there's a lot of old credits in the system that can't really be verified. 
Trove CEO Guy Turner contends that more than 60% of credits on the market are from projects that have questionable additionality claims, including I mean, that's old, massive. old yeah, old renewable energy projects. Yeah, and that and that really leads into, you know, I think the the second main challenge with with carbon offsets is if we if we ensure that they're used for the right reasons, which is saving them for things like air travel where we don't currently have, you know, cost-effective biofuels or cement manufacturing, stuff like that where Yeah. Eventually, we hopefully have a solution, but we don't today. The you know the second big challenge is, you know, to your point about that wind farm in China, right? It's ensuring these benefits actually get achieved. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the last thing we want is people taking credit for stuff that that they would have done anyway. So you can see where there's potential for you know sort of fraud or inflation of benefits. And you know, I think a lot of a lot of the problem stems from the fact that there isn't an international standard or a internationally recognized oversight body. And in the absence of that, it's going to be hard to be able to be convinced that, you know, the benefits are legit. And I'm not suggesting that we walk away from, from carbon offsets. I think they have an important role to play for those places where we just can't effectively tackle emissions today. But we need to be culling these low quality credits and and then you know ensuring that stuff produced going forward is is verified it's it's done against a particular standard yeah i get it, it the, some of this is new it's hard to prove without a doubt that something would or wouldn't have happened but i do think there's you know methodologies that we're going to have to agree to to make sure that this whole process isn't being completely abused the the guardian newspaper and Unearthed, which is sort of the investigative arm of Greenpeace, did a great deep dive into kind of the emissions credits that are being used in a lot of air travel today. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they found a lot of methodologies that were inconsistent or not robust enough. And on certain projects really led to some overstated benefits. And again, we shouldn't be moving away from carbon credits. There, there are critics out there that say that we shouldn't be using these things, but I think they represent an important tool but I think we have to learn from the last 15, 20 years and where mistakes have been made to ensure that there's there's trust going forward and that we're actually having the outcomes that we proclaim to achieve. Yeah, I know right now, speaking of COP26 and the UN Climate Summit, this this very topic has, has come up. You know, there's obviously a lot of people that have a lot of criticism of credits and are worried that we could agree to things in this summit that could kind of pave the way, I guess, in a sense for more, more of the same, you know, basically overstating the benefits and kind of bailing out, you know, the oil and gas companies. Right. But I agree with you. I I think there is a place for this and it makes sense. Like you said, there are certain, certain industries or whatever that it's just going to be hard for them to, to reduce. Right. And so there should be kind of an outlet for them to be able to, to kind of help out as they can. There is a a task force called Scaling Voluntary Carbon Markets that was kind of teed up by a guy named Mark Carney, who is Special Climate Envoy to Boris Johnson. So he's sort of the John Kerry of the U.S. Okay. And the goal of that was to scale you know, efficient and effective voluntary carbon markets with the recognition that these things are going to grow, right? And there are going to be countries that are trying to use them to meet their targets, and, and it looks like they're making some progress. They established a governing body in September. 
and their first priority gets at what we were talking about before, which is finalizing standards that ensure you know global carbon credit quality. Because it seems like that has that has to be your first stop, right? Right. Um, you got to make sure your bamboo farm that you're putting up in your backyard is actually going to deliver the, the necessary benefits. Yeah, exactly. No, that's very good. Which, by the way, I, th- I think that could be an option for you, right? I know you hate mowing the grass, and maybe you start a bamboo project and you you sequester a ton of carbon. No, I definitely I have enough room. I probably could. I could I could rock a whole bamboo maze back here. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure your neighbors would love you for it, but you know, well, it could be your way to contribute. There's worse things I do than that. They would probably be happy to have the bamboo. <laughs> they wouldn't have to look at you anymore. Yeah. So the the task force is rolling out recommendations. They're going to work on standards and you know really trying to figure out how to scale these markets. And their recommendations, I think, feed into how do we execute on the plan to strengthen carbon markets. And this is part of, without getting too jargon-focused, on Article 6 of the Paris Accord. The goal is really to strengthen the integrity of the carbon markets and create a central mechanism for trading. So it's like, if we're going to do this, we've got to do it right. Mm-hmm. And and I think, unfortunately, it's been pretty contentious as countries are trying to reach agreements on things like double counting. You don't know why you'd ever be able to double count, but right. some countries have been wanting to. And in other words, you know, if you're counting emissions offsets, you have you bought in the United States, some of these source countries are also wanting to claim emission reductions in their their country if that's where the offset project took place. I see. And then you have a another group of nations, and this is even more problematic, that are looking to roll over a lot of the these old projects that were developed under what they call the clean development mechanism from the Kyoto Protocol. It gets back to your point about, you know, how the CEO Trove Research was saying about 60% of what's out there is is questionable. Right. And so obviously the bulk of the nations are saying we need to just retire these credits and move forward. But you've got some countries that are holding out and saying, you know, they want to continue to take credit for this stuff, which is really problematic. It gets back to that example of the the wind farm that was built that would have been built anyway. And so you're really not right. you're really not having the impact that you that you want to have. No, not at all. Yeah, I mean, this feels like the kind of accounting practices that, uh, you know, the oil companies and Googles and Apples use to, you know, not pay anything in their taxes. Exactly. So this leads into, I think, a natural question, which is if you individually are trying to find offsets, how do you ensure that you're getting the real deal? And we've talked about the principles in a sense already. I mean, those are, you know, this idea of additionality. In in other words, it needs to create something that wouldn't have occurred otherwise. It it needs to be verified against a standard and avoid, you know, what's called leakage in terms of we're talking about forest projects. I don't know about you, Todd, but I I was looking at the different flavors of projects. I, I tended to be drawn to ones that were focused on developing countries and delivering kind of multiple benefits, right? Right. You know, we talked about cook stoves in Africa, things like biogas capture in developing countries so they can, they're capturing that methane and then they're using it in turn to provide, you know, heat and, and energy reforestation projects, et cetera. Sure. 
in my mind, it's avoiding things like large renewable energy product projects, which I would argue because of the price of wind and solar, these things are going to happen anyway. Sure. I'm, I'm not saying that like a community solar project in in Southeast Asia isn't isn't valid, but when we're talking about utility size projects, mm-hmm. those are going to happen anyway. It's already economically feasible to do them, right? Totally. And to that point, as time goes on, and you know, let's say biogas capture becomes cheaper, or you have a country that says we're going to put a moratorium on all logging. At that point, it's sort of you retire the benefits, right? Mm-hmm. So it takes some pretty careful accounting, but yeah. I think if you do it right, obviously it it can have big big benefits. Well, and I think what you say about the developing countries and putting this there makes sense to me because we're going to have to kind of invest and pay them to not do what we did. Totally. I mean, because they're they're getting ready to grow and expand and get their economies going and maybe maybe this is where some of this offset stuff could really be viable and really have an impact is to to prevent the those developing nations to give them the tools to to do this right the first time i agree and what better than to have a carbon offset project that provides climate benefit also help you know lifting a nation out of poverty or you know providing energy that they can you know have the lights on that seems like just a totally a win win and the UN has what they call these sustainable development goals. And so in my mind, it's like, let's find the projects where you, you know, you check as many of those boxes and yeah. and then we have the potential to do good above and beyond, you know, addressing climate change. So that probably leads us into what can we do? And, you know, one thing I think just personally that you can do is offset your flights and driving. You know, if you have an EV, that's not going to be as impactful, especially depending on probably where you live. You know, we want to reduce first, right? You just do less of all of those things, but also consider, you know, you could buy double, you know, the offsets or triple, especially considering what we've kind of learned about offsets. That might be something you want to do just to make sure that it is paying it forward and we are contributing to the additionality. Yeah. And if we start first by really reducing our emissions and put your focus there, then, you know, I I think the offsets are a a really a viable option. And there's tons of companies out there that that offer offsets. And there's certainly more than we had time to review. Right. One of the ones that for me seemed like a good place is called the gold standard. And we'll have links on our website so you can get to them. But the nice part about their offerings is you could actually click on the specific projects that you want to support. That's cool. You know, they have all these different flavors. A lot of the, you know, other carbon offset vendors, you can go on and buy a certain amount of offsets and maybe they show you what the projects are that they're doing, but you aren't necessarily having the option to choose the project you want to support. So Ah. really like the gold standard for that. It seems like they set the bar high and yeah, to your point, right? Like let's, let's go out and buy double or triple. And it's not like this stuff is expensive. I think there's probably that natural question of, well, what does one person buying offsets really do? Sure. But I think this is no different than talking about voting, right? Like everybody's vote counts because when you add them all together, it makes a difference. So 
take the time, go and check out the Gold Standards website, pick a project that makes sense for you, and you can use their carbon calculator to see how much your flight produces. From a general standpoint, you take a flight from London to New York City is roughly a metric ton of CO2, which ironically is bigger than the carbon footprint of some people in the world for the, their entire year, which gives wow. you a sense of how much more we consume in the in the developed world. But yeah, right. and, and another reason to go ahead and just buy double or triple the offsets. So we're not just paying to continue to pollute, but we're helping have a real impact on reducing emissions. Yeah, exactly. I, I saw on this this site called TerraPass where you can basically just sign up for like a monthly amount that you pay. It's basically trying to offset your house and driving and everything that you do. This is a pretty cool idea, especially if you're doing a lot to reduce it already. For sure. Our, our second action opportunity for the week is focused on encouraging John Kerry, who serves as you know the special envoy for climate to the Biden administration, to push to get these older carbon credits excluded as we move to basically what's laid out in the Paris Accords and and like we mentioned before, to avoid any double counting. In doing those two things, we really ensure that in a go-forward basis, the efforts and money being spent on carbon credits will actually reduce emissions. Otherwise, we have the potential of, you know, frankly, doing more damage because we're assuming that we are offsetting pollution when in reality, we're just putting more up in the air and doing nothing about it. Right. We'll have a link to the State Department form you can fill out to send him your comments, as well as talking points you can and cut and paste on our website. So I think the reality is the world of carbon offsets is a complex one. And, you know, rightfully, there are critiques of how things have been done in the past. And we need to be really focused on addressing those mistakes to ensure that we have something that's truly reducing carbon emissions going forward. But based on the research that I've done, and I think, Todd, you agree, this is this is something that could have real benefit. Yeah, I agree. And hopefully, you know, something will come out of the the current, you know, climate summit in, in Glasgow that'll help with that. Yeah, fingers crossed. So that's it for this week. Thanks for tuning in and uh, come join us next week for more climate solutions, reasons for hope and ways each of us can make a difference. Climate Optimist is made possible by Climate Stewards Collective. You can find us on the web at climateoptimist.co. That's climateoptimist.co. And follow us on social at Climate Optimist Podcast. 